We are going to be in Matthew 13 this morning, uh, covering uh, the last parables that are found in Matthew's gospel this morning. I, I don't know about you, but I've discovered something about the parables that Jesus taught. The ones he explained are a lot more easier to understand than the ones that he didn't. I don't know if you guys have noticed that or if it's just me. Uh, today we're going to be looking at three different parables that are only found in Matthew's gospel. They all start with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like. One is about a hidden treasure, one is about a pearl of great price, and one is about uh, the gathering of fish in a net. And only the last one is explained by Jesus. So people have different understandings and interpretations of the first two, which we'll uh, cover today, and we're going to look at those two first. So in Matthew 13, starting in verse 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So two parables that tell different stories but have the same point. In both of these, we see a discovery, an estimation, and a response or an action. So in the first parable, we have a man who finds a treasure in a field. He makes an estimation that this is worth everything to him. So he responds by selling all that he has in order to, to buy the field and secure the treasure. So at this time, banks weren't, weren't a thing. So if you had something valuable and you wanted to, to keep it safe, hiding it in a field was, was a good thing as long as you remembered where you hid it and were alive to find it later, I suppose. And in this instance, it doesn't look like it worked out that way. So this, this person happens upon a treasure that somebody else had buried. There's no indication that he was looking for it, um, but we do see that in order to make sure that he can take possession of it without taking a chance of any dispute, he just purchases the, purchases the entire field, and, and that way he makes sure that the treasure can be his. The treasure is, is obviously more valuable than anything else he can imagine, and so he sells everything he has to get it. Now, in the second parable, we have a merchant who is actually in search of treasure in the form of pearls. Pearls at this time were uh, very rare and desirable. I think they probably still are today, the real ones anyway, and I don't know much about those. Uh, but he finds one of great value, and he estimates that it's, it's better than any pearl he's ever found before and, and better than any pearl he will ever find. And so he does the same thing. He sells everything he owns in order to secure it for himself. Now, it's important to state that in these parables, Jesus is not trying to teach us about treasure hunting or finances or real estate or investments or anything like that. He's using things we're, we're familiar with to drive home a bigger point. And, and basically, um, the way most commentators, I would say, understand these, these passages, the ones that I found anyway, they interpret the parable something along these lines. The gospel or the good news of Jesus is the treasure that is hidden in the field, and also the pearl of great price. That's what that is. The field is the world, and that's consistent with the other things that we've seen. So you find this treasure you know, in the world, like we do when we hear the gospel. The person who finds the treasure or the pearl represents those who hear the gospel, see the value of it, whether they're people who stumble upon it or people who are searching for truth and find it that way, either or. And if that's what Jesus means here, then the point would be that the kingdom of heaven is of inestimable value and it's worth everything we possess. So I would ask, 
Does that resonate with you? Is that true for you? Is the gospel the most valuable, precious, wonderful thing you've ever found? I hope, I hope that is true for you. When you think about what makes this so valuable, why is it such a treasure? Why is it worth forsaking everything else to get? The reasons are, the first one is that it restores our broken state. We're all broken people. And the gospel is what will heal that brokenness. It will restore us. That's a good thing. The next one is that it grants us forgiveness, right? We all have a debt we can't pay. This treasure solves that dilemma for us. This treasure gives us a righteous record. (laughs) I fall so short of God's standard of perfection, and, and, and the gospel fixes that for me. It also removes any fear of death and any fear of judgment to come. What is that worth? <laughs> it's huge. It gives us a free ticket to heaven. That's big. But, but maybe the most important thing, and probably the thing we, we tend to maybe value the least, it gives us a relationship with God. The God who made us. It, it, it gives us a relationship with Him. So this is amazing. You know, what are those things worth? What kind of price tag would you put on them? Can you think of anything more valuable? The Apostle Paul is somebody who, you know, we're very familiar with his story. Um, Mike actually talked about him last week. He was somebody who was desperately trying to please God through his own works and righteous efforts. And in in fairness, he did a much better job at it than most of us probably do. He he really gave it a, a good, you know, a good run. But, but at some point, he was abruptly confronted with the gospel of grace, and it changed everything for him. Can you imagine always trying to please God through your works, always trying to, to figure out, have I done enough? Do I need to do more? Is it enough? Is it enough? Is it enough? And then being confronted with grace and, and realizing that. It, it's so different than what he previously encountered, because Christianity gives us a righteousness that is received and not one that is achieved. Very different things. And so Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 3 when he describes what he's come across here in finding this treasure. And in verse 7, it sounds like a a lot like what we we see this this person describing who found the treasure in the parables. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I forsook everything else. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on God by faith. Paul sees this as something infinitely more valuable than what he was able to produce on his own. And he's a person that went all in, right? He, he forsook everything else and, and, and went all in to get that treasure. When you find something this valuable, you'll do whatever it takes to get it. You'll willingly forsake everything else. And this is, you know, this idea of once you've found this, the implication is once you find a treasure like this, once you've found what you're looking for, all other, you know, all further treasure hunting exposition, expeditions are, are unnecessary. There's no point in... And try, you know, I found what I'm looking for. I don't need to keep looking. So, you, you know, you hang up your, your Indiana Jones hat and, you, you know, you quit, you quit going on those adventures because you found it, right? But the, the sad thing is that it should be the end of our quest as Christians. But, but, but I think sometimes we buy into this idea that maybe there's something else. Maybe we go back to the old stagnant watering holes or maybe we go back to the pig slop that we were in before. Maybe, maybe we'll find something there. You won't. There's no life there. There's no satisfaction there. There's only disappointment. And we need to, we need to remember that and get that through our heads because we, we seem to 
Still try. And the sooner we figure that out, the better. There is nothing better than the treasure that we have in Christ. The kingdom that we now belong to is far superior than anything else this world has to offer. Think about what it provides for us. Identity. People right now are trying to find their identity in so many weird ways. I have an identity that's wrapped up in in who I am in Christ. It gives us adequacy. You know, you you feel like you can never measure up. I'm never adequate. This treasure does that. Christ does this for us. It gives us acceptance. I am loved. I am known fully and still loved. You You know how wonderful that is? Because it's easy to say you love somebody until you really get to know them. <laughs> God knows me, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he loves me. I have that. I have security. Nobody can disrupt this. Nobody can take it away. Nobody can snatch me out of the Father's hand. That's amazing. I have family. I'm not in this alone. I have, I have this wonderful family of God that I'm a part of now, and I have purpose. You know, people try to figure out what their purpose in life for. I know what my purpose is. It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him and to tell other people about Him. I mean, this is such a good thing. There's this beautiful freedom that comes with being a citizen of this kingdom because it allows you to, have to, to live kind of unencumbered in this world. I don't, need to, I don't need to fear. I don't need to worry. It doesn't matter what's going on here. You know, I, I have, I, things are set you know, ahead of me and I, and I have that to look forward to. So once you find this treasure that is Jesus Christ, you're set for life, even eternal life. It doesn't stop. It doesn't end. Now, of course, there are people who hear this news, this, this, this news of the gospel, and they don't see it as the treasure that it is. And that may be for several reasons, but I, I thought of two. Either they don't see it as good news because they don't fully understand the bad news. That's one reason. Or maybe they do see it as good news and they, they like the idea of going to heaven, but they see more value in keeping what they have. In, in living the life that they want to live. The rich young ruler is, is, is an example. If you, if you know the story in the Bible, he's an example of both of these things. You know, he didn't, he didn't understand that the, the bad news was as bad as it was, and he also didn't um, really want to give up what he had. We read about him in Matthew 19, and if you're familiar, you know that this, um, this young man comes to Jesus, and he asks him probably the most important question someone can ask. He says, what, what must I do to to gain eternal life. But this is how he phrases it. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's kind of funny that that makes more sense to us than forsaking everything, dying to self. We, okay, just tell me what, what good, give me my list of three things I need to do to go to heaven and, and I'll, I'll work that out. That, that sounds good to us. Come and die, <laughs> forsake everything. That doesn't sound good to us for some reason. So the young man obviously sees himself rich in two ways. He was rich financially, but he also sees himself rich morally because, as we'll soon see, he, he doesn't really see himself as a sinner. And he thought that he was pretty close to getting into heaven based on his own merits, which means he doesn't understand the bad news. And there are a lot of people, I think, that fit into this category, uh, especially because we're now living in a time when people don't seem to think anything is wrong. <laughs> I mean, You've got to be doing something really crazy for somebody to say, well, that's wrong. I mean, really crazy. So it's easy to see yourself as pretty righteous when you, com- when you compare it to everything else we see going on. It would have also been logical for this man to assume that God was pleased with him or happy with him because he was wealthy. And we, we do that, don't we? we? We think, well, if I have riches and wealth, clearly God likes me and is happy with me. Don't, don't we do that? We think that way. We forget that Satan has the ability to make people wealthy. 
as well. And, and if, you, if you don't understand that, you look at the temptation of Jesus in the, in the wilderness where Jesus just basically said, look at all this that's out here. I'll give all of this to you if you bow down to me. And Jesus didn't say it's not yours to give. He, he, he didn't argue with him. It seems like Satan is able to do these things somehow. God has given him enough you know, lead on the rope to, to, to give people this, this kind of stuff. And if you think about it, it's pretty wise because we see it as blessing from God and, and maybe it's a thing that, that pulls us away from God and Satan knows that. He knows that this might draw us away from, from God entirely. And so having riches doesn't necessarily mean that God has blessed you. It could, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. So even though the man thought he was morally and financially set, it's very telling that he still knew something was wrong. He still, knew, he still understood that something was lacking or missing. And that's why he asks Jesus this question, what, what, what do I need to do? He still knows that. And I think we all, we all know this deep down in our soul. We all know something's wrong and something needs to be fixed. Everybody does. So he asks Jesus the question, what do I need to add so that I can go to heaven? I know I'm close, but what would just kind of push me over the, the line there to where I can get in? Do I need to go to church more often? Do I need to give more? Do I need to volunteer more time? I mean, that's, that's the way we think about this stuff. And if you've ever read this account, you might be surprised by the way Jesus answers back to him. Because again, it doesn't sound like the right answer. What, what do I need to add, Jesus? And Jesus says, if you would enter life or heaven, keep the commandments. Sounds like Jesus is teaching salvation by works. Keep the commandments and you can go to heaven. Is that right? Well, it is. Jesus is telling them the truth. If you want to find a way to get to heaven on your own, all you have to do is live a perfectly righteous and sinless life. And you'll get to heaven. Anybody, anybody, you, you, anybody relying on that program? No, of course not, because we can't, right? Jesus knows this. But, but that's, what we're, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's actually zeroing in on this guy's blind spot. This guy doesn't, doesn't see himself as a sinner, and Jesus is going to make that clear to him. And, and hopefully, in doing so, he's going to show him where he really stands, hopefully create desperation in this guy so that he will see that the gospel really is a treasure he needs. And I love this, that Jesus is willing to do this for this guy. So we have to remember that Jesus knows what's in each of our hearts. He knows what, what we, you know, if he was talking to me, he might do something different than he was with the rich young ruler. But... Um, the bottom line is this man is convinced that he's a good person who's pleasing to God, and what Jesus is going to do is just gently walk him down a path to show him that it's not the case at all. But he does it in a pretty cool way. So in response to Jesus telling him all he has to do is keep the commandments to gain access to heaven, the young man responds by, by asking, okay, which ones? It's a good question, right? I mean, when you consider there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament law, you know, which ones do you, and then of course there's all the stuff that the religious leaders added on. So, so it's a good question. Which ones do I need to, to, to focus on? And Jesus simply sticks with like the well-known ones that, that we, from the 10 commandments, he, he mentions some of them. Um, he says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's possible that Jesus lists out the commandments that this guy was actually doing a pretty good job of, of, of handling. Maybe that's what he had in mind here because, you know, we can give the guy maybe the benefit of the doubt. The way the young man answers tells us he believes he was doing a good job at keeping these because he, he says it, all these I have kept. Like, what do I still lack? It's kind of funny, but I like that, you know. It's like, okay, I got that stuff handled. What else you got? 
And this is where Jesus drills down to the real issue. He responds by saying, if you would be perfect. I want to stop there for a second because, again, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Perfection is the standard. That's the necessary standard. If you want to get into heaven, like how how perfect you need to be to go on this ride, 100% perfect, holy. Say That obviously disqualifies all of us. We don't think this way. We think that in the end, God's going to take our good deeds and then our bad deeds, and hopefully the good deeds just kind of, you know, go like this. But that's not the way it works. You know how many bad deeds it takes on the scale to, to disqualify you from holiness? Yeah, just one. And we don't think this way. We don't, we, don't, we don't understand it. And I have a really gross analogy that'll help you, you know, get it if you want to. But just for what it's worth, bear with me. Let's say I found the, the most pure, wonderful, refreshing spring water in the world. And I, I, I put a glass of that out here. You wouldn't hesitate to drink it. It would be wonderful. But if I were to go into the men's bathroom, and I chose the men's bathroom on purpose because it's the grosser bathroom generally, and took a droplet and put it in the toilet and just got a little drop of toilet water and came out and one drop, just one drop into that glass, would you, would you, would you drink it? And there's always that one wing nut from like grade school that says, if you give me $5, I'll drink it. I don't, but <laughs> you wouldn't drink it. Why? Because that one drop has defiled the whole thing. It's, it's permeated all of it. It's changed its entire makeup. And that's what we don't understand. That's, that's what sin does. It, it, it defiles the whole thing, right? So perfection or complete holiness is God's standard to access his kingdom. So Jesus responds to his question of what, what do I lack by saying this? If you would be perfect, the standard, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then you can come and follow me. Now, Jesus isn't saying that if we give away all our possessions, that's how we get into heaven. He, he's, he's zeroing in on the guy's blind spot, like I said. It's interesting that the parable of the, you know, the man who finds the treasure, this is the same, it's the same thing. He finds a treasure and goes, I've got to have this. I'll, give, I'll get rid of everything. But the rich young man doesn't do that. Jesus is, is telling this guy who sees himself as a superb law keeper that this guy hasn't even passed the first commandment. That's what he's saying. It's it's kind of funny. I've kept all the commandments, Jesus. And he's like, you haven't even kept the first one. And you don't even see it. What's the first commandment? Don't have any other gods. Right? And and does this guy have another god? Yeah. One that he's not willing to forsake. One that he's not willing to leave. And it's riches. And he doesn't even see it. He 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 can't see it. And Jesus is like, boom, you're an idolater. He loved his, his riches the most. That was his real treasure. He was unwilling to part with it. And so he went away sorrowful, it says. The man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Now, this is where Jesus' disciples who watched this whole thing go down ask the question, well, then who can be saved? Right? It's a great question. Because the truth is, we're not that different from the rich man. And I think the disciples understood that. They're, they're going, wait a second. He wasn't willing to forsake this thing, and they start thinking, looking to themselves and thinking, well, who can be saved at this point? And this, this is why this interpretation of the parable gives me a little bit of trouble. The idea of the man is, you know, we're, we're the ones that find the treasure. Because I don't feel like I'm that much different than the rich man. Would I, upon stumbling upon this treasure, see it as treasure? Would I forsake everything in order to get it? You know, these are the questions we have to ask. Would, did I, would I deny myself to get God? Or is the reality that I'm too broke to buy the field and I wouldn't even see it as treasure anyway? 
right? And so, so when they ask who, who can be saved, Jesus gives this answer that I love. It's one of the greatest statements in, in the Bible. Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That means that if God intervenes, if God does something, we can be saved. And that's good news. So this is where there's another way to look at this parable where we kind of flip the script. And, and, uh, and it's good for us to think this way sometimes. I'm not sure which the right one is, but, but here's what we do often when we read the Bible. It's easy for us to read the Bible from an individ, individ, can't talk, individualistic triumph. I'm not going to try to say it again. Personal perspective. Just when, when Elmer footed that, that was good. Um, we can see ourselves as the main character in the story and then center everything around us. I don't know if you do that, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm really good at doing that. So when we read something in the Old Testament, we think, okay, that's me. I'm the hero of that story. And oh, I'm like that guy. I'm, we'd, we'd want to do that. But we're not the main character of the Bible. Jesus is the main character of the Bible. This is a story about him. And so with that in mind, maybe we can look at this parable slightly different. What if instead of this being about us finding a treasure or a pearl, it's about Jesus finding those things? As I stated at the beginning, we have a man who finds a treasure in a field. He makes an estimation that it is worth everything to him. And so he responds by selling everything he has in order to buy the field and secure the treasure. What if that's talking about Jesus and not about us? Maybe this isn't about us finding Jesus. Maybe this is about Jesus finding us. And and this is kind of neat to think about. What if Jesus is the one who left everything he had? What if we are the treasure or the pearl of great price that he wanted? What if he paid the price with his own precious blood? What if God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we wouldn't perish but have eternal life? You know, it's hard to imagine that we would be a treasure that God wanted. That's, that's where we, we, we go, wait a second, that can't be right. Why would he want us? Why would we be the, the pearl of great price? But the truth is, that's what the Bible describes. We are the bride that he chose to set his love upon. We are the bride that he left his glory for to come and, and win. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? It's an incredible thought. And this isn't foreign to the Scriptures either because we can read in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 7, 6, this is what he said about his his people in the Old Testament. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And I believe we're part of this now. I don't, I don't believe we've replaced his people, but we're now part of God's people. We've been grafted in. And, and so even in Titus 2.14, it repeats this idea. It tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. You are precious to God. Do you know that? It, sounds, it just sounds so weird to hear it. I am precious to God? It doesn't make sense. But he forsook everything to win you, to make you his own. That's why Jesus came. Isn't that crazy to think about? But I'll tell you what, when I think of the parable in the first way, like this is up to me somehow, it, it, almost, it almost feels like a, oh, oh man, this is on me. It feels almost like a weight. When I think about it the second way, I'm worshiping God in gratitude and thinking, thank you, Lord. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. Are you kidding me right now? It's like, yes. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. Look at this. You guys had 
he had prepared for me. I have to say there's truth to both ways of looking at these parables, and I'm not sure which way to go. Uh, commentators are split on them. It's kind of funny. But it's, they're both true, um, and, and you, you get it. That's, that's the neat thing. When Jesus doesn't explain it, make sure that it, it lines up biblically with, with other truths in the Bible, and, and we have a little bit of freedom here. I wish I understood it. Maybe you can tell me what your thoughts are about it, but... Um, but, but I know that um, the, the, the context flows pretty good when you, when you run into the next section because if this, uh, the meaning of the parable is that Jesus came to purchase and secure people of his own, then the next section is a very natural transition because in verse 47, it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into con- containers and threw away the bad and this is another one where jesus explains it for us which is great so in verse 49 it says so it will be at the end of the age the angels will come separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth now in this parable jesus basically is describing this large dragnet that you can kind of picture just slowly um, being drugged through the waters of time uh, pulling in every person who's ever existed toward the shoreline of eternity. And, and, and that's where everybody gets sorted out. It's very similar to the parable of the, the wheat and the weeds that Pastor David covered a couple of weeks ago. A great sermon. If you didn't hear it, you can go back and listen to it. Um, it even ends the same way. At the end of the age, the angels come and, and separate good and bad, righteous from unrighteous, and each will be distributed into their eternal dwelling place. Now, of course, we know that none of us is good in the sense that, you know, we can't make the cut because of our goodness. We've already established that. We can't come close to God's standard of perfection and goodness. So what makes a person a good fish? We, we need to know this. It's based on Jesus's righteousness being given to us, not us achieving it. And, and this is vastly, this is the good news of Christianity is that he has, he has given us the righteousness we need to be good. So this refers then to people who have confessed their sin, recognized their need for a Savior, repented of that sin, placed their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for their salvation, and have bowed their knee to Him and confessed that He is Lord. If you have done that, congratulations, you're a good fish. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's it. He, he does it. Um, and it's not something we have to, to, to obtain. But that's the only way to become a good fish. Now, it's easy to read this parable and only see the disturbing side of it, which is the fiery furnace part. Um, it's right there for us to see. It's like, <laughs> there it is. But it's also helpful to focus on the incredible grace that exists in this passage. The reality is that all of mankind has swam away from God. We, we didn't want Him. We wanted to go the other direction. And God, in His grace, has intervened. So the fact that any fish end up in His kingdom should blow your mind. Should, should just, like, what? Because when you consider what God did in order for that to happen, you know, who, the sacrifice of His own Son, for instance, in order for that to happen, it's mind-blowing. Now, there's been this recent push in, in the church to erase the idea of hell Almost like, you know, we want to we give God's image a, a much-needed makeover. You know? So, 
it's kind of frustrating. And it's not because the Bible is vague about hell. It's because it makes us uncomfortable. And because it's difficult to understand. I'll just straight up admit, hell is one of my least favorite subjects to talk about as a pastor. It's right up there with money. Both of them just stink. I don't want to talk about them. But Jesus talked about it. And He talked about it with vivid detail. He certainly talked about it like it was a real place where people would end up. Too many Christians have jumped on the bandwagon like they want to be God's publicist and, and you know, do damage control, make him read a little better with the, you know, with, with the younger demographic or whatever, with the culture. It, we're, 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 we're wrong when we do that because we're now creating an image of God that we're comfortable with. How do you suppose God feels about that? <laughs> Not good. Do you think we need to get God off the hook? Do you think he's like looking for our help here? Do you think we need to rebrand God's image? No. Are we going to submit to the pressure of culture and adjust truth accordingly? Or are we going to submit to the authority of God's Word and adjust to what it teaches, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable? And it's got to be the second thing. There are two things that help me in regard to the subject of hell. The first one is knowing that God is completely just and that nobody's going to end up there unfairly. Anybody that's in hell, it'll be very clear. And it, it may not be clear until we get into heaven and see things from God's vantage point. But at that point, we're going to see His holiness. We're going to see our sinfulness. And we're not going to be scratching our heads forever going, huh, no, we're going to get it. There's not going to be any question at that point. We're really going to get it. The second thing that helps me acknowledge, um, that helps me in acknowledging the reality of hell is that it motivates me. One of the big dangers of this movement to erase the reality of hell is it also erases the urgency to tell anybody or to warn anybody that they're going there, doesn't it? Right? If if hell's not a real thing or a big deal, then I don't don't need to go have awkward conversations with people about about their eternal dwelling place, do I? See how convenient that is? And I think that's, that's, you know, it kind of gets you off the hook of evangelism. Jesus spoke about hell in terrifyingly vivid detail. Utter darkness, a place where the fire won't go out. It, it, never ha- it, it, it never stops consuming. A place where the worm won't die. It always has something to feed on. A place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, that's terrifying. And, and I'll just tell you, that's what, that's what scared me into the kingdom of heaven. God used the fear of hell to, to get me to, to finally bow my knee. Now, there's, there's no doubt... Um, this is a difficult topic, but, but it's one that we need to, uh, if we're serious about it, if we believe it, we need to be willing to warn others about it before it's too late. And, and that's, a, that's a difficult thing to do. You know, the way we do it is, is obviously, you know, it matters, but this is, this is huge. So I appreciate that it's in the Bible, and I appreciate that Jesus took it seriously and talked about it. We need to also. So it motivates me in that regard. Jesus has been teaching his disciples amazing truths about the kingdom of heaven in these parables. And there's no doubt that it would have challenged a lot of their preconceived notions too. Probably they struggled with some of the stuff that he talked about. So he ends the section of the parables by asking his disciples the following question. He says, have you understood all of these things? <laughs> it's pretty funny. You know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, Jesus is obviously a master at communicating. 
one of the keys to communicating is making sure that the people you're talking to have understood you. So asking probing questions like, did you understand what I just said? Getting clarification, that's a good thing. If there's, if there's a need then to say, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about, you, you get to continue to work on it, right? That's good. Um, you know, if you ever have questions, by the way, for us, I, I, would, I hope you guys know that you can come to us, if it's, whether it's doctrine or the direction of the church or, you know, what are you guys thinking or whatever it is, just come and ask. We can have a conversation. That's, that's, that's good. Jesus gives them this opportunity by asking them, have you understood all these things? And they respond in a kind of a surprising way by saying, yes. Yeah, Jesus, we, we've been totally tracking with you this whole time. Maybe, maybe they were. Um, maybe they were smarter than we sometimes give them credit for, or maybe they just didn't want to admit that they didn't understand everything. <laughs> I'm thinking, I heard one commentator said he thinks they responded with more enthusiasm than accuracy. And I, and I would agree with that. <laughs> I can see myself doing this. Even at times when we were, you know, over in, in the foreign country of Scotland, where they say they speak English, but there's times when you don't think that they're telling the truth because they'll, they'll talk to you. And I, there were a couple times where they'd say something, I'd be like, yeah, I understood that. I have no idea what they were saying. But it was easier just to pretend I did than, than to, you know, to save face. If they did understand it, it didn't last for very long because from this point until the resurrection, they, 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 they prove over and over again that they really don't understand Jesus and what he's doing. But I love that Jesus doesn't challenge their answer. He doesn't, um, you know, say, I don't, I, don't, I don't, he just basically charges them to take this newfound knowledge of the kingdom, everything he's been teaching them, and go to teach others. That's what, he, that's what he says in verse 52. That's what he's getting at. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. A scribe is somebody who studied the scriptures, interpreted them, and then told people the proper way to live by them. And Jesus is now charging them with this task. We might call it discipleship today, where we teach people the word of God and, and how, to, how to live, how to get into the kingdom of heaven, how kingdom people are supposed to live here on earth. Uh, all of these types of things. And Jesus talks about bringing up both the old and the new to accomplish this. And, and I think this is a reference both to the Old Testament and the new is what he was teaching them now, but what, what, what would become the New Testament. Both are important. Again, I see a movement today to try to, you know, unhitch or, or disconnect from the Old Testament. It is the inherent, valuable Word of God. We need to make sure we view the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. That's important right? But, but don't discount it. It's, it's, it's God's word. It's valuable. There are going to be times when um, we, we don't understand the New Testament or the Old Testament properly, again, like unless we're, unless we're doing that. So we always need to make sure we're, we're looking for Christ. We're looking for the story of the, the meta-narrative of the Bible, which is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You know, that's the way we read the Bible. It fits into that. But I love that no matter where we're at in the Bible, um, I like the way Spurgeon put it, so I'll just, I'll just quote the way he said it. He said, Don't you know, young man, he was sp- speaking to a young lad, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road that leads to London. So from every text in the Scripture, there is a road that leads toward the great metropolis that is Christ. And so I would just encourage you, whenever you're reading the Bible, um, you know, we play, you know, where's Waldo is probably a bad way to put it, but where's Jesus? Where do we find him in this? And in the Old Testament, the new covenant was promised. It's there. And, and of course, we see it in the New Testament as well. Jesus is the main character of the Bible. He is the hero of the Bible, and he should be, because he's the one who, you know, he's that treasure. He's the one that, that made us his treasure as well. And, and one of the greatest um, ways that we can remember 
Christ in the, in the scriptures is through communion because these tables really do represent the gospel, the work that he's done on our behalf. And today, as we think about this, I want you just to, to remember how much God loves you, how valuable he is for you. You know, we get, we get so kind of wonky sometimes in life, wondering, you know, do I matter to God? Is he paying attention to what I'm going through? Um, he sent Jesus, bread, body, the cup, his blood, for you. Does God love you? <laughs> it's displayed on this table in such a profound way. He does love you. So in 1 Corinthians, we read, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much uh, for making us your bride. Uh, Lord, we know we're not an impressive bride. We, we know we're not even a lovable bride, and we know we're not even a faithful bride. And yet, you have set your love upon your church. And so we, we, we are grateful. We thank you that, that you purchased us at great expense to you. None to us. It was free to us, but at great expense to you. So thank you for your broken body, and thank you for your shed blood, and thank you for this message of hope that we have that we get to take into the world, Lord. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.